again in a hole safe from fear when the Southland is free. I go to fight for these old hills behind me. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio. It's this week on Broadway for Sunday, September 22nd, 2019. My name is James Marino and in the broadcast today we have Janetessa Fox, Peter Felicia and Jan Simpson. Peter is a playwright and journalist and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Jenna Tessa Fox. Jenna is a theater writer and reviewer whose articles have appeared at Time at New York, Playbill, Broadway World, and New York Theater Guide. She also has her own podcast, Spotlight on the Broadway Radio Network. Good morning, Jenna. Good morning. How's it going? Oh, very mm-hmm. good. And also with us is Jan Simpson. Jan is the director of culture excuse me, the Director of Arts and Culture Journalism Program at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY and also writes for TDF Stages, American Theater, and has her own blog at Broadway and Me. She sits on the executive board of the Atta Critics Circle and is a member of the American Theater Critics Association. Good morning, Jan. Good morning. So September 22nd, we were just saying, it's got a lot of things going on here. Uh, what did I hear? <laughs> First day of fall? Yeah. Uh, Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS uh, flea market this uh, this later this morning all day. Yeah, <laughs> go see uh, go see Peter at the Theater World table. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll and, be there. Uh, Jenna mm-hmm. buying lots of uh, things. Uh, and also there was something else what what else was the third thing for Uh, the 55th anniversary of Fiddler on the Roof Ah, the 55th anniversary and it's still in town it is (laughs) it is one more thing to add before we get into our reviews is that you can support Broadway Radio going to patreon.com slash broadway radio and uh, there's different levels of support that you can give us to keep uh, help us keep bringing Broadway radio shows to you every week. So in our first set of reviews, Peter and I got to see Darren Brown's secret. Je- uh, Jenna talked about it last week. So Peter, what did you think of Darren Brown? Well, you know, I, he's so amazing that you have to wonder if uh, the people he chooses in the audience are plants. And I guess there's no way around it. I was thinking about that a great deal because, I mean, he gets so specific when he uh, somebody in the audience stands up and says, um, here I am and uh, tell, me, tell me what's on my mind. And he's very good at it. I mean, yes, he does throw Frisbees out and all that. And uh, I'm still thinking that maybe his aim is good enough to uh, be able to get the person who catches the frisbee but he's just so amazing you're looking for excuses um there has to be some sort of trick how can he be so specific i also wonder if sometimes the people um say okay yes um fine you know that's uh that's what i was thinking to make him feel good and not want to contradict him uh 
one person did um, slightly, uh, but it turned out it, it was the wrong person. Um, but all things considered, it's pretty amazing. And one has to wonder about the smoke and the mirrors. But, you know, the other thing that's so amazing, too, is that uh, there's a, a, a bit he does twice involving a banana on the side of the stage. And he tells us at the top of the show that a person in a gorilla suit is going to come out and take that banana and we're not going to notice. And damn if I noticed, I'll tell you. And one time I said, all right, after the first time, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to look at the banana and that's it. I'm going to wait. And, of course, my attention was diverted and I didn't see the gorilla come out. There's a big surprise about that gorilla, by the way, as time goes on, too. An amazing surprise. And I don't know how he, uh, he can manage that either. But, uh, yeah, a lot of people say, oh, you know, I don't like magic. This isn't quite magic. Uh, it is magic in the sense that he does amazing things, but it's not like a rabbit out of the hat magic. This is all mental stuff. He's a mentalist. That's a different thing from a magician. So really he is um, assuming from your bearing, your speech patterns, all a bit of Henry Higgins in him, uh, that type of thing what he really believes you to be. Now, he did say to one guy, um, oh, I can I can tell from your accent, you're from Dublin. The guy says, no, I'm from the Bronx. Um, but uh, for the most part, he's pretty, pretty good. So um, I would say he was successful 99 and 44, 100% of the time, which, you know, is certainly an A-plus where I went to school. So, so it really is something. And I'm not a big fan of uh, this type of thing, but I do notice that whenever one of these shows comes around, um, I do go. It's it's not unlike the lyric in uh, Jason Robert Brown's lyric in Honeymoon in Vegas. Um, I like Broadway once a year. Well, I like magic once a year and mentalists once a year. And I'm very glad that I went this year to see Darren Brown. So uh, Jenna talked about it last week and uh, I had seen actually Peter and I were at the same performance. Um, mm-hmm. And Jenna I was thinking to myself, I, I need to also go back a few times because I was, I was very frustrated that I didn't catch on to how he was doing this. <laughs> and so I wanted to ask you, uh, were you – I think you said last week you were just as amazed each time you saw it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I was. Um, going back, I saw it twice down at the Atlantic and then the other week uh, on Broadway and – a lot of the tricks are repeated, but especially with the audience interaction, they have a different flavor with each moment. Uh, each audience member does different things. And I turned to my companion a few times. He's a big magic fan. And so we've gone to every performance I've gone to see uh, with uh, him. Yeah, Try that again. <laughs> uh, he loves it. And he has a much, because he's really into magic, he has a much better idea of the bells and whistles and he could explain a few of the things to me um but seeing what the audience did and uh how they reacted and knowing how the trick is supposed to end suddenly my uh, hair would stand up and i'd think oh my god this isn't going to work because the audience didn't say audience member didn't say this right thing and uh the, the trick still works he knows he's a consummate enough performer that he knows how to steer everything and make the trick work even when the audience members do different things at every performance. And this is how I can tell you, no, they're not plants because it's different people every time I've been there. And they do different things. And it's mind-blowing. It really is that he is able to steer everything just so with different people pulling different tricks. Uh, Not pulling different tricks. What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, You know, Mm. responding in different ways that throw, you know, they throw some curves into the way things are supposed to go. 
and it's great to watch him keep it on track. So you, you get a different appreciation with multiple viewings. I he is so charming. Mm-hmm. I agree with that too. I, I mean, he has got that thing that you can't you can't learn, you can't train. He he's got that when he is on stage, you have to look at him type of Alan Cumming type of thing, uh, Sutton mm-hmm. Foster type of thing. Uh, it, it, it's, it's unbelievable. And, and his wit and his, uh, and his ability to come up with things that are seemingly extemporaneous. I mean, it, it's, mm-hmm. incre- I, I can't really say it's, it's theatrical. It, it's theatrical in one sense. It's not a book show. Certainly it's not a book show. It's not a traditional Broadway show. Mm-hmm. Um, hugely entertaining, hugely. I, I really loved it. And it made me think and think and think and some of the press reps were you know were like a couple days later like you're still thinking about it aren't you and i'm like yes <laughs> yes i hate you for that i hate you because it it, it yep. just and i i definitely uh it, it's one of the shows that merits multiple viewings so that is uh darren brown's secret it's playing through january 4th please please get to it. it's so entertaining so interesting and uh, i think that you'll enjoy it Jan, you got over to Playwrights Horizons to see Wives. So tell us about this uh, Jacqueline Backhouse play. This is one of the shows that I was most looking forward to um, for the entire fall season because I'd seen Jacqueline Backhouse's Men on Boats. Uh, I guess it's four years ago now. doesn't seem that long. I know, but yeah. (laughs) And I loved men on boats and she's had a couple of other shows in between that weren't successful at least for me but this show uh returned to her her real territory she writes from a feminist perspective and wives uh, purports to be a show that's taking a look at Famous men, uh, Henry II uh, of of France, Ernest Hemingway, uh, but from the perspective of the women in their lives who who were not given as much uh, time or aren't given as much time traditionally. And that sounded like it could be a fun premise. The problem... For me, and this this really killed me because I I was such a fan of hers, and this was for me such a disappointment. She has said that she was working on a number of different plays, and she decided to stitch them together into this one play. The problem is that these were four separate plays, and she stitched them together in 80 minutes. And so we're like racing through uh, uh, history and the points that she wants to make, uh, there isn't a lot of time. And if you don't know a lot about the court of Henry II, or if you don't know a lot about Ernest Hemingway and his various wives, it's a little spotty and I don't know a lot about the court of Henry II. I do know uh, more about Hemingway's uh, uh, wives. And that's probably the most successful 
uh, seen segment, not just uh, because of my knowledge of their uh, of his wives. People, other critics have described that as the most uh, successful of the uh, sections, but you don't have enough to hold on to. Uh, There's a lot of humor. One of her trademarks is anachronistic language. So everybody's talking in contemporaneous speech. And there's a lot of profanity, uh, which I don't, I don't, it's not that I'm against profanity, but I don't like it when it's used to get a laugh. Mm-hmm. If, if you're not going to, if you're not going to get the laugh um, naturally, just throwing in a curse word or a swear here or there to sort of shock the audience into laughing is um, really annoying. Uh, Margot uh, Bordelon is the director. She directs like, crazy. She directs lots of plays and her specialty is working with new work. I don't think I've ever seen anything she's done that's uh, a revival. And she knows how to put together an entertaining uh, production. So this is, this. there's, again, there's a lot of laughs. The actors are all Excellent. Uh, I have to say that I think that standing just a little bit above the others is Adina Verson, who people may remember from Indecent. She is uh, everything I've seen her in. She uh, is just excellent and she's hysterically funny here. I uh, again, I can't recommend it, even though there are entertaining moments, because I think you'll you'll walk out and you'll say, well, what was that all about? How did those different parts, the other two parts, one is set in a Maharaja's palace in the 1920s in India, and the last section is set um, in an Oxbridge classroom of feminist studies, and and to say, well, how did all of those really uh, click together? The truth is that they don't. They don't. Okay, so that is Wives Over Playwrights Horizons. Uh, it's playing through October 6th, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Jenna, you uh, got over to Second Stage to the playroom uh, where you made believe... <laughs> with a bunch of people uh and uh this show is closing today and you finally got caught up with it so tell us what you think of make-believe yeah totally behind the times here and i'm (laughs) really sorry i didn't uh didn't get to see it earlier and join in the conversations Uh, the production was already discussed on uh, the september 1st and september 8th editions of this week on broadway so uh, if you want a more detailed summary, you can go listen to those. Uh, I don't have a massive amount to add to what was already said. Um, and for those who might not remember from two weeks ago, because I sure as hell don't, uh, the play follows four children who are hiding in an attic in the 1980s for various reasons that we learn. And then it jumps ahead 30-some years to the present, where the Mound grown children return to that attic and discuss what they went through as kids. Um, the play is a really unnerving look at uh, childhood and adulthood and how trauma from the past affects the present. And 
to that extent, it's nothing new. I mean, all of this has been done before in a million other stories and a million other different types of media. What makes this piece really notable is how Bess Wall, uh, the playwright, lets us figure out piece by piece what the various traumas are in these characters' lives. And we learn about what's been happening around them through voicemails that we overhear and then through the games of make-believe that echo what they've hear, heard their parents saying. Uh, when they're grown up and they reunite, we learned how they coped with their childhoods. Uh, we learned how they had to continue making believe rather than accepting a lot of the truths of their lives. And the childhood game of make-believe now becomes adult self-deception. And it's a really nice balance between the two and a nice little connection of those two uh, uh, coping mechanisms. Uh, I, I do have to say, uh, the play isn't as compelling as Small Mouth Sounds was, but it is certainly thought-provoking. It's genuinely disturbing. Uh, James, you had mentioned that and there's, there's a good fear factor in the show, that it's genuinely frightening in a lot of places. Um, and I think that says a lot both about Wool's skill as a writer, Michael Greif's skill as a director. Uh, I mean, I was sitting up straight in my chair when you hear footsteps in the hallway. They become so menacing because we know nobody else is supposed to be in that house. And there are children in this room and they're on their own and they're unprotected and there are footsteps. And it's terrifying. Something that shouldn't be on its own, uh, unnerving or worrisome, suddenly becomes really frightening. And that says a lot about the, the skill of the creative team. Um, I've got to give massive credit to the cast. I mean, they do amazing work, and the four children are really particularly effective. They convey fear and anger and compassion uh, effortlessly. I mean, we absolutely believe that they are a very close family unit, and they have learned to survive together, and they rely on one another. Uh, Casey Hilton, Marin Heary, Ryan Faust, and Harrison Fox do some really impressive work well beyond their years, uh, conveying all of those emotions and getting really deep into their characters and what they're dealing with. Uh, when we meet the characters as adults, they get to convey the, uh, the lasting damage of psychological trauma and all of the coping mechanisms they've developed. Uh, Samantha Mathis, Susanna Flood, Kim Fisher, and Brad Heberly do some really nice work together. And I love how you would absolutely believe through the mannerisms, through the speech patterns, that these children have grown up into these adults, uh, with some exceptions that I don't want to spoil it, even though the show is closing today. I am hoping it tours. I'm hoping there are lots of regional productions and people can be surprised by all the twists and turns the story takes as, as I was. So I don't want to say too much. Um, but it's a really great touch when you can see similar gestures, similar speech inflections from child to adult. And you know, clearly these actors worked very hard together to make sure that there was consistency and they, it really pays off beautifully. Uh, Graves' direction is nice and fluid. He builds the tension very, very well. Although uh, I agree with what was said previously, there are some staging uh, issues that just jumped out at me as awkward. Uh, one character, and again, I don't want to give away too much, uh, spends much of one scene upstage in the shadow on his, on his phone and just talking. Well, not talking. He's listening to a phone conversation, so he's out of that moment. And it just felt so awkward to have him there on the stage, but not part of the conversation going on 
to have, you know, you would think he would be a part of this conversation if he can hear what's happening. And why is he continuing to have a private phone conversation in a room with other people? It, that didn't make sense to me. And I would wonder if there was a way Greif could have staged that so that it didn't seem so unnatural and unreal. Um, but by and large, that was the only thing that really jumped out at me in the staging that didn't quite gel. Uh, David Zinn's uh, set is really amazing. It made every every inch of that space was used and every piece of that attic becomes important. There was nothing wasted there. And just looking over the set uh, and taking it all in, noticing tiny little details here and there, really nice work. And uh, Ben Danton's lighting design is also really good, uh, very effective, conveys a lot of mood and you know, builds up the tension very well as subtle shifts as moments change. And it's a beautiful production, and I'm glad it extended. I'm glad I finally got to see it. Um, sorry it's closing, but I do hope uh, it has a healthy life on the road with a lot of this creative team still involved, and I hope it's done in a lot of regional theaters coming up. It's uh, a regional producer's dream. So, I mean, can you imagine this at George Street Playhouse? I was just thinking this would be such a perfect play for that space. I'd mm-hmm. love to see that there. So, yeah, I can see this doing very well in a lot of regional theaters, and I hope it does. I was uh, just going to say that about the regional theaters. I think that this is going to be a play that we get to see a lot next year in the regions. Sure. Yeah, I hope so. All right. So uh, Peter headed south to the beach. Mm -hmm. Peter, did you go to the beach or did you stop short of the beach and go to a theater near the beach? What do you think? <laughs> Peter went to Surf Light Theater in Beach Haven, New Jersey to see Boynton Beach Club, so starring Andrew McArdle. So tell us about this, Peter. Yeah, this is about a senior citizens uh, community, and here's Andrea McArdle, Annie. Um, but 42 oh. years have passed. Yeah, I know. <laughs> what can we do? You know? Oof, that We're was getting older, so is she. she <laughs> so anyway. Be in the beast. No. I know, I know, I know, I know. Yeah. All right. Uh, by the way, if this title sounds familiar, uh, you may have um, seen the 2005 film that Susan Seidelman directed and co-wrote. Uh, she's still with the project, this musical version. Uh, she wrote the book herself this time, uh, and she left the direction to Karen Carpenter. Um, the <clears throat> And the score is by composer Ned Paul Ginsberg, and there are two lyricists, Michael Colby and Cornelia Ravenel. So we're in a Florida retirement community, and some people are carrying golf clubs very securely. Some people are using walkers, you know, and uh, but some people may have come to this retirement community a little too early. And certainly a woman named Marilyn um, wishes she hadn't because, um, her husband was actually killed there, uh, by a driver who wasn't paying attention. And so, uh, it's very hard for her to, um, to be there. And so she's part of the Boynton beach bereavement club, uh, which is there for widows and widowers. And there's where Andrea McArdle is. She's a, a widower and there is a guy who's interested in her and she's had such bad luck with so many people in this community that she just doesn't even want to try again. But of course, you know, she's going to because the guy is charming and handsome and uh, we later learn good in bed too. Um, also there is Jack um, and Jack uh, is played by Joel Blum. I'm, I'm sure many of us know uh, Joel Blum because he's been around for a while and um, I guess they all have if they're playing these parts. But anyway, um, Joel is Jack 
And um, his wife just recently died. And I mean, it's going to be very hard for him to get over it. So there are very nice scenes that really underline this. I mean, for example, um, going through the closet and getting rid of his wife's clothes, um, it, which is a very painful thing for, for people in this uh, situation. So um, and then, you know, deciding, uh, all, all right, I'll try to move on. And there's a wonderful song called My First Date in a Million Years. And that date is going to be with Sandy, who has come on to him a bit. You know, and she's not what's wonderful um, is that she's not desperate. I mean, she's interested. She's persistent, but she's not desperate. And I think that's really a tribute to um, Karen Carpenter. And I'll be mentioning names a little later. Uh, So uh, the point of the show is that a lot of these people wind up lying to put their best foot forward, to put their best feet forward. And there are two enormous lies that take place in this show. And I have to say that while there's never a good reason for lying, um, these two people come very close to giving you reasons that make you say, oh, well, I see your point. So you do wind up forgiving them. Whether or not the characters who, to whom they're lying forgive them is another story entirely. Uh, I think the score is um, very good. Um, certainly, there are a lot of ear-tickling rhymes. This is the first time I've ever heard the insurance company Geico uh, rhymed with Psycho. But um, And um, there's an Italian song where Jello is rhymed with Cabello. So... Um, and and th- that's a very nice um, – Ginsburg does the Italian Nate song very well. He's very good with cha-chas and doo-wops and um, that type of stuff. There is a line in the show that I wish he'd paid more attention to um, when one character says, I haven't been popular since Woodstock. And uh, that's good, that reminds us that you know senior citizens now are, are baby boomers. And the baby boomers um, certainly didn't have an affinity for show music. Um, in fact, I think they were the first generation to really spurn jo- um, show music and have contempt for, for show music. Just as they were coming of age, that's when all those big movies came out, like Paint Your Wagon and Dolly and um, so many others that bombed terribly because uh, the baby boomers who who then had the money to go to the movies just did not want to see Star with Julie Andrews. Um, uh, So really, under those circumstances, um, Ned Ginsburg should really consider having more um, music of that period when they were coming of age because just as they always say, women tend to dress um, throughout their entire lives, the way they did at the height of their beauty. Um, most people's music is the music they liked as kids. Um, they stay with that, and that's their favorite. And that's why we have so many jukebox musicals, in fact, because, of course, people want to hear the songs of their youth. So so a more youthful song would be welcome here. No question about that. But when um, <laughs> Ginsburg comes out with melodies that really are toe-tapping and uh, terrific, yeah, you, you, you don't uh, really mind that as much as um, I'm making out. All the details are here. You know, the early bird specials, uh, pickleball, going to karaoke, Viagra, sure. Um, now, any writer could bring these up. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to um, to do that. But the point is, Seidelman really knows <laughs> where to put these jokes, how to write these jokes, and where to put the punch in the punchline. So I think that's really uh, quite good, too. So um, it's too long. Yep. It's too long. It's more than two and a half hours, but um, uh, it's not going to be too hard to cut, I don't think, um, because um, there's a running joke that could easily be dropped. It's a funny joke, but it's, you know, it's an easy place to cut it. Um, Then there's another character named Harry who gets in trouble with an online date. Um, I don't mean he causes the trouble. I mean, the online date turns out to be 
far more than he can handle. And he actually winds up in a hospital bed as a result of it. And that's rather unpleasant. Unfortunately, it does lead to a very good song um, that uh, would be harder to set up if this didn't happen. Harry, by the way, is played by Barry Pearl, who was one of the Randolphs in uh, Bye Bye Birdie on Broadway. In 1961, you know, so he's all grown up too. Um, so uh, Randolph was Kim McAfee's little brother, in case uh, uh, I'm not being clear. So, um, so Barry Pearl's in it too, and um, so it's very nice to uh, to see that as well. So, um, I, Leah Hawking really does wonderfully by an 11 o'clock number that um, Ned Ginsburg and the lyricist has given her, but. Um, Unfortunately, there is a, a sequence that I think should be cut here, too, and that is she confronts the woman who killed her husband, and the confrontation gets really ugly. And frankly, I'm amazed that the woman who killed the husband says what she says, and it's just much too ugly, so I would cut that as well. But I do think the show um, does have a future. Um, you know, They do say that the average theatergoer now is a woman in her 40s, but of course, um, they're getting older too, so as a result, I think that um, certainly a lot of women in their 40s are dealing with parents who are in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. And as a result, I think they can relate to it on that level as well. So I think there's a nice future for the Boynton Beach Club, and I hope it continues. Okay. So uh, that is down at Surflight Theater, and I think that it is wrapped up today at 2 p.m. So hopefully you can catch it in its next incarnation if you haven't seen it yet. Jan, you got over to 59 East 59 to see only yesterday. Uh, so tell us about this. Well, I'm going to tell you about only yesterday in a minute because there were two shows that I saw at 59 East 59. And the show that Peter has just talked about, um, a, a senior community, is very relevant to the other show I saw at 59 East 59, which is called Fern Hill. So um, I'm just going to jump in on that one, if that's okay. Uh, Fern, <laughs> Fern, Fern Hill is written by the actor Michael Tucker, who people may remember from the old TV show L.A. Law. He played the sort of nebbishy a, a lawyer who ends up married to one of the uh, female uh, lawyers at the firm. And uh, uh, part of the joke is she's such an attractive woman and he's a nebbishy guy. And how did they get together? And then the underlying joke of that is that Michael Tucker and the woman who played that lawyer, Jill Eikenberry, are married in real life. And Michael Tucker has written this play about three couples who range in age from 60 to 80. And uh, one of the women in one of the couples is played by his real-life wife, Jill Eikenberry. Michael Tucker is not in the play himself, but he uh, and his director, Nadia Tass, have assembled an incredible cast of, of actors uh, for people who really know and love theater. They've got Mark Bloom. Uh, they've got John Glover. Mark Lynn Baker, uh, Jody Long, and Ellen Parker. And what's the, the setup of the play is that 
these three couples, longtime friends, are gathering for uh, a double birthday. One of their uh, in their group is a guy who belongs to, he's the leader of a rock band and a rock band that was pretty hot in the sixties. Um, and probably weren't listening to Broadway music as Peter just (laughs) said, and they were, and now his band is moving down the, the, the bill they're playing, you know, like nostalgia shows and so on. And his name is Billy and Billy's turning 60 turning 80. And that's the character played by Mark Lynn Baker and played wonderfully by Baker, uh, 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 also celebrating a birthday is Vincent, who is an accomplished artist, and he is about to turn 80, and he's played by uh, John Glover. And so, as I said, they've gathered, but the real thing that's holding them together is that they are thinking, they are, they are gathered at this uh, farm uh, up in New England called Fern Hill, and it's owned by uh, a couple named Sonny and Jer, not Cher, Jer. Uh. Sonny and Jer. Sonny is the woman, Jer, short for Jerome, uh, is uh, one the other man in the, the, the group. Uh, Jer is a professor. And Sonny has the idea that this is a large farm, large uh, uh, property. There are some other buildings on the property. And what they should all do is they should all move there together. And so as they age, they're aging in this community of friends. Uh, They're proposing that if they get frail and need additional help, they can pool their money and hire someone to come in and uh, assist them. The one holdout to this idea is Jer. He's not so sure he wants to do it. The others are really determined that, yes, they do want to do this. Uh, It's not a big conflict, But what does come as an additional conflict is that one of the people in this group of six is revealed to uh, have had an affair. And this throws everybody out of sync because these are longtime marriages and an affair is discovered um, being had by one of them. This is a really pleasant evening in the theater it's one of the things that i so admire about it is that uh it's a play about people who are aging but there's no one who's got dementia there's no one who's uh having trouble um, uh, pardon this but getting it up um there it's about older people who are still vital, who are still living their lives and trying to figure out how they want to live uh, the rest of it. Now, I'll say I went with a friend. Um, uh, Both of us are in this target 
uh, area. It's a pretty large target area, 60 to 80, but we fall within it. And he didn't like it. He It, it, it didn't work for him. He thought it was too slow, uh, too predictable. I enjoyed it, and I think a lot of people who are in this age group uh, will enjoy it. There was one thing in the opening scene that I will say that was annoying. Uh, Billy is cooking. Billy fancies himself as a really great cook, and he gives this really a long and elaborate and detailed recipe for uh, spaghetti with clam sauce. Uh I'm assuming this is Michael Tucker's recipe, and he is clearly nah. he is clearly proud of it because it's included in the program. Uh, <laughs> so, um, I I wish they'd done it um, more briefly uh, in the play, but I do have to say I think I'm going to try it out because it really does sound delicious. <laughs> um, and the play, while maybe not delicious is also uh, really enjoyable. And I really see this being done uh, around the country, particularly in community theaters where you have lots of actors who would fall within this age range. Everybody gets uh, a a sort of a juicy, meaty uh, scene, speech. Um, I really enjoyed Fern Hill. So maybe Fern Hill can be the first show on Broadway sponsored by Carmines? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe they're working some sort of angle there, you know, uh, blowing the garlic into the theater. Uh No, not like pie. No, you don't want (laughs) not like waitress. All right. So Uh, tell us about Only Yesterday. Only Yesterday also falls uh, within the same demographic in a way because Only Yesterday was inspired by uh, this interview that uh, former Beatle Paul McCartney gave to the public radio uh, interviewer Terry Gross. And we actually hear uh, this part of the uh, interview where he talks about uh, a, a night where uh, the Beatles in their early days, in their sort of, you know, little suits and Beatle mop top uh-huh. haircuts, um, they were on tour and they got uh, diverted because of weather and they had to stay a night in Key West, Florida. And, you know, they're still... Uh, they're they're a hot group, but they're they're not yet the Beatles in the way that we now look at them. So they have to share rooms, and uh-huh. Paul and John share a room, and Ringo and George share another room. The entire play takes place in this hotel uh, motel room. It's it's not even a fancy place where John and Paul are staying. And in the interview with Terry Gross, uh, Paul McCartney says it was one of the moments when they let down their guard and they had a really personal uh, moment between the two of them where they really bonded in a different way, not as musicians, not as budding rock stars, but just as two 
men who had just recently been boys. And um, so that's what the play is is about. It's about this evening that 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 they have. There is uh, a lot of music. Uh, to it. They play, they sing. At first I thought, how are they getting the rights to the Beatles catalog? But it's not the Beatles catalog. It's the songs that they sang uh, early on that were uh, from the Chuck Berry catalog, uh, other song from Buddy Holly, uh, other songs that I, I think they were able to get rights to more easily than the Beatles catalog. The two guys who are playing John and Paul don't really look a lot like John and Paul. Uh, Christopher uh, Sears plays John. Tommy Crawford plays uh, Paul. Their uh, liver putty and uh, accents aren't quite uh, uh, right. <laughs> they, 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 I think, overemphasize of the, uh, the, the accents. But it's another uh, genial, I guess you would say, evening uh, in in the theater. There isn't a lot of uh, a production value. It's it's a seedy motel room. There are, there are only two other characters. One is a guy playing uh, a guy who's their road manager. Uh, he's played by an actor named Christopher Flockton. And then there's a fan and she gets, she crawls into the air, the air conditioner vent. Wow. (laughs) And we never see her. We just hear her um, as she's uh, 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 eavesdropping on them and then having a a really kind of uh, lovely fan exchange uh, with them. It's, I can't say that this is going to be the best evening you've ever had uh, in the theater. And I don't know that it really delivers on the promise of the bond that uh, John and Paul uh, forged. But if you are a Beatles fan, and there are a lot of you out there, I know. If you are a Beatles fan, I think you'll really uh, just enjoy this sort of little interlude with uh, the Beatles story. So only yesterday at 5090 59 is uh, scheduled through September 29th. We only have seven days left. It is a New York Times critics pick. And well, all, over big their, hit. all over their website, it is said sold out. There's no tickets available. You bet. So mm-hmm. uh, maybe we'll see another production of it in New York soon, but certainly we'll see it in the, re- in the regions next year as well as uh, make-believe, you know, a double, double bill there. <laughs> mm-hmm. So this is, uh, yeah, a big hit. Absolutely. Wow, I didn't know it was sold out. As I said, a lot of Beatles fans out there. Yep, exactly. <laughs> that is awesome. All right. So, Peter and Jenna, you both got over to the uh, New York Public Library for the Performing Arts, where there is an exhibition called In the Company of Harold Prince. And uh, yes. tell us, uh, Jenna, start us off with uh, what, what can we find here at this exhibition? Oh, you can find so much 
this is uh, this exhibit is you know, obviously it's a must see for anybody who cares about uh, theater as an art form or as a business. And you know that is how Hal Prince balanced it as both a producer and a director over the course of his what, seventy years in the industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I wound up walking in through the wrong door. There's, you know, a front entrance and a back entrance, but because of the way it's set up, I wound up walking in through the back. Don't do what I did. Um, go in through the front, right off of the front entrance to the library, and then you can follow Prince's career more or less in chronological order from the 1940s all the way to Prince of Broadway in 2017. Uh, there are obviously lots of photos, but um, beyond that, the collection includes a lot of letters and telegrams between collaborators and notebook pages about how scenes should be staged or are working or aren't working. Um, and when we learn so much about the creative process, both from a producer's perspective and from a director's perspective, we learn about the evolution of company and some of the performers who were considered for the earliest drafts, and maybe a lot of this was common knowledge, but it wasn't something I knew about. And uh, I felt like an idiot for not having read Prince's autobiography before going in. But you don't have to do that to enjoy it, but I, I now really wish I had, and I need to read that immediately. Um, just fascinating insights into how some of the most beloved shows in musical theater uh, developed. Uh, there are digital versions of scripts, and you can stand there and flip through. You can see photos to match each page, so that as you're reading how a scene takes, how a scene is happening, you can look up, and there are digital photos of what was happening on the stage. So you get a very clear, you know, as clear a, uh, a recreation of those moments as you can imagine. I mean, there are full models of some of the most iconic sets ever seen on Broadway, Follies, Company, Cabaret. And you get a real sense of what it was like to be in those theaters on opening night. And here's what the audience was looking at. It is just fantastic. Uh, There is fascinating info about uh, Prince's work and other theatrical efforts. You learn about um, how he promoted driving up the cost of the premium seats in the front orchestra as a way to make sure balcony seats were kept affordable and people could afford to see a show without breaking the bank. Uh, He organized buses to bring theater fans from the east side over to the theater district and back again. Uh, He helped lay the foundations for the theater on film and tape archive. Uh, There's a great letter for him lamenting that once a performance is done, it's done and it's lost and there should be some way to preserve it. Uh, It's fantastic. Uh, I really recommend leaving um, <laughs> several hours. Yeah, <laughs> leave several hours to walk through the space. Uh, given the nature, given the subject matter uh, and the nature of the exhibit, there's a massive amount of audio and visual content, and it is all worth stopping to listen to and to watch. There are you know, video clips from various performances, a lot of interviews with him, and you know, the interviews go back decades. So it's amazing to just see him grow in these interviews as he's talking about the different productions. Uh, you can walk by his desk, or maybe it's a recreation of the desk, I'm not sure, from when he was working with George Abbott. There's a phone on the desk. The phone will ring, and you can answer it, and then you can hear him talking about his work during that time. It's fantastic. I mean, tiny little details that are just amazing. I mean, all of it takes time to experience in full. So 
the exhibit space itself is fairly small. It's only like three rooms, uh, really, but they are so full of content. You really need to take the time to stand there, watch the videos all the way through, listen to the interviews all the way through. Uh, leave yourself a couple hours to see and hear and watch everything. It is a fascinating look at a man who really changed the industry uh, in so many ways, in ways that I didn't even know about. I had no idea he helped develop the archive. I had no idea he helped promote driving up the price of, uh, of orchestra seats to keep the balcony cost effective. And it's amazing to see the firsthand evidence, these telegrams, these letters, notebook pages, all reproduced and then analyzed to make sure people understand the significance. And just walking out of that exhibit, I was so, so much more grateful for everything he accomplished in those 70 years. And I have a deeper appreciation. I mean, not that I wasn't a fan to begin with, but such a deeper appreciation for his, his work as both a producer, as a director, as someone who wanted to change the way theater was, uh, was created and developed. And he did. He accomplished all of that and did a wonderful job. So I highly recommend the exhibit. It's running through March. You have time. It's free. It's open to the public. Go. Just give yourself plenty of time to really experience and enjoy it. It is open to the public, but don't you need to schedule something or no? Nope, nope. You do? You Walk do? right in, step right I just, down. Because I just walked right in. Yeah, I, well, you know, when you're VIPs, you know, you can just <laughs> no, do that they, stuff. Really? No, they, <laughs> but on the, uh, on the public library's website, uh, there, it does say it's free, but it does have a scheduling thing. But anyway, well, okay. I, no, you know, no, I, no, up. I was walking down the street. And I ran into Steven Brinberg, the Barbara Streisand impersonator, and he had just come from it. And I said, oh, gee, I'm glad you mentioned it. I'm on my way home. I'll stop in. And it was that casual. I mean, nobody asked a question of me. I just walked in. It seemed like other people were just walking in, too. Yeah, I think I think the scheduling part is they're having a series of lectures. And you have to reserve to get into the lectures, but they have nothing, uh, not that they don't have anything to do. They're disconnected from your abil ability to just go in and see the, the show. I've already reserved for one of the lectures. And so I was going to put the whole day together and go see the exhibit and then go to the lecture and just sort of like OD on Hal Prince. I, that's how I was. Yeah. Oh, yes. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> So, Peter, uh, what was your experience there? Oh, uh, just as uh, potent. Um, I, I was walking around singing uh, the song that's in Opening Doors from Merrily, um, Who Wants to Live in New York? Well, this is a good reason to live here, I'll tell you, because you can go quite often. You can drop in any time. I mean, some of the things are so personal. Uh, Sondheim wrote a song for a birthday party uh, that oh. Daisy, his daughter, Charles, his son, and Judy, his wife, would sing. And it was actually called Daddy Heshi. I mean, we don't think of Hal Prince as Heshi, but anyway, Steve Sondheim is able to. So, uh, yeah, the set designs are amazing. Uh, I noticed that the fiddler on the roof, uh, there were twin beds for Tevye and Golda. Uh, that didn't wind up being mm -hmm. the case. Did they, they're, they're in a double bed in, in the show, aren't they? I think they are. Anyway, but... Um, in, uh, in the script, I think it does say that they are in twin beds. Really? I okay. Correctly. Yeah, I, I, I it seems to me they're in the same in bed. The uh, but anyway, uh, that's... that's um, um, 
going back to way back when, when he, you see his first contract, um, when he got minimum money, um, I'm not going to say how much because I want you to go for a show called <laughs> Just David um, at the Ungonqua Playhouse. There's um, a checklist of possibilities who create the pajama game. Um, it seems Harold Arlen was the first choice to compose and Leonard Bernstein was the second, Harry Warren third and Frederick Lowe fourth. Um, it, but they also were trying to get Hollywood names apparently because they wanted, um, at least this was just, you know, thinking out loud, that type of list. Van Johnson or Gene Kelly uh, for Sid and Jane Russell for Babe, which is kind of interesting. Of course, he would wind up, uh, Prince would wind up working with um, Jane Russell later when uh, she took over for Lane Stritch and Company. There's this painstakingly <laughs> uh, detailed uh, financial register. Uh, just this enormous book that is open to um, the end of 1966, and it lets you know that what the Prince office had in the bank at that moment in time was $131,077.98. Um, I used an inflation calculator to find out that's $1,006,859.41 in today's money. And it doesn't even sound like that much, does it? But um, anyway, Prince was very famous for um, doing things economically. I don't necessarily mean cheap. I don't mean that. But um, Goldman in the season uh, made the point that if David Merrick and Harold Prince save, uh, p- uh, produced the same show, you know, if it, um, Merrick's would probably run longer and Prince's would make more money. Um, and I think that was really very accurate. There's the Time Magazine cover that he was on. Um, he wasn't on it uh, solely. It was Millionaires Under 40. This was 1965. And uh, there are six pictured here, but Prince's in the center square, if you will. Um, so, uh, and that might be because Fiddler had been running 14 months at that time, and that was the big bonanza. You find out he had an appointment with Gwen Verdon on March 17th, 1964. And next to her name, in parentheses, are the words Baker Street. Now, Prince was directing Baker Street, the Sherlock Holmes musical. It would open the following year. And I guess he wanted her for Irene Adler, the part that Inga Swenson would later play. Doesn't We have no idea why she turned it down or what happened or anything like that. There's a very funny letter that says, Dear Jerry. Now, somebody wrote next to it, Bach. Um, it's... I don't know who wrote it in. I don't know if it was somebody at the library. I don't know if he wrote it in later. But to me, it sounds like the Jerry he's talking to is uh, Robbins because he makes suggestions about what should happen with Fiddler. And he makes a lot of complaints about what um, is going on with Fiddler <laughs> and uh, what he thinks is wrong with Joe Stein's book. And the letter ends with, and I quote, Jesus, don't read this to Joe. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> uh, so we have that. Um, so, uh, if you ever really doubted that Leonard Bernstein originally received credit for co-writing the lyrics to West Side Story, you'll see a window card there that literally says lyrics by Stephen Sondheim and Leonard Bernstein. Now, if this were from the National Theater in Washington, um, that would be a different thing, but this is from the Winter Garden. So it really suggests that Bernstein's offer to give Sondheim credit came very late in the game. Um, I think uh, one of the real treats is the Wheel of Fortune that he had in his office. I, when I went to his office, I used to see it behind the, the, the desk. And um, it literally is like a circus Wheel of Fortune where you can spin, and, uh, like, like the Wheel of Fortune TV show. Okay, except it has the names of shows on it. Um, Parade is under Floor of the Red Menace. Damn Yankees, Pajama Game, and Sweeney Todd are 
altogether. And the whole point is that um, it's a wheel of fortune whether or not a show becomes a success or a failure. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's uh, fun to see as well. Um, yes. Uh, it runs through March 31st. And by the way, that will be the 54th anniversary of It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman opening. Why do I mention that? Because there's a lot of space devoted to the Superman show, even though it wasn't a hit. I mean, would you expect to see the health club membership card of Bob Holliday, who played Superman, you know, to keep him in shape? You know, so <laughs> so they, I guess they actually paid for him to go to a health club so that he wouldn't look uh, pudgy um, when he was playing Superman. There's also a letter from York Advertising Company that says for $450, it'll fly a plane over Atlantic beaches on the 4th of July with a banner that says, See Superman, Broadway's Funniest Musical, but also demanded are 10 pairs of $12 tickets. Now, um, we did just hear that um, the um, Prince did premium pricing. It was not what premium pricing is today. First off, at that point in time, uh, there'd already been a ticket for $11.90. So going up to $12 really wasn't prohibitively uh, crazy. But the reason he did is so he could sell $2 seats in the balcony. That's what um, Jenna was alluding to. So um, anyway, these people of the ad time agency will do it for four fifty. But you've got to give us 10 pair of $12 tickets. We want the best tickets. And um, But here's the thing. They asked for them after June 28th. And um, I wonder if they got to see the show because the show only closed 17 days later. So I have no idea. There's an ad that I I, I did research. I can't find this, uh, but I'm looking for. Anyway, there's an ad for Superman where the word fun is stressed. Notice I said Broadway's funniest musical. Well, fun is stressed. And the thing is that you have quotes from all the critics that mention the word fun. And 32 times. The word fun is used uh, by separate critics of the time. You know, Howard Taubman, you know, et cetera, et cetera. No, I guess it was Stanley Kaufman. I'm sorry. Um, Taubman had left at that point. So anyway, um, what I really find interesting about this is that um, David Merrick took out a similar ad for Cactus Flower. Um, and and I wonder who did it first. Um So uh, I'd be very interested to see uh, who did it first, but the Internet hasn't helped me on that to find that ad. Um, So that's um, one of the things. You are going to go in there and you are going to have questions. You know, it's it's one of those things that you come out and you've learned a lot, but you also have a million questions as a result of what you see. And uh, so expect, expect to spend a lot of time at the exhibit, yes, but also expect to spend a lot of time on the internet afterwards looking up things to answer your questions. And I hope you have more luck than I do. So, um, and, um, the, the, the little plaques on the wall that explain everything are worth uh, looking at too. Um, so, Oh, oh, another thing that was great was you Wheeler wrote, um, who was writing the book to Sweeney Todd wrote Prince and said, I've experimented with the major action taking place on two levels. The barbershop on the floor above the pie shop with an outdoor staircase connecting them. So, you know, we might have assumed that that was Eugene Lee's um, solution to the problem. But there's you Wheeler saying the barbershop should be on top of the pie shop. And, of course, that's what happened. Uh, By the way, I don't think that this number will work anymore. But you also find out that Jason Alexander's phone number was 212-496-0746. When he was living at 307 Amsterdam Avenue, which I Mm -hmm. imagine he's not. It's near 78th. So, um, 
So uh, there's Lonnie Price's Eighth Street address uh, when he was still living with his parents. This, of course, is for Merrily We're All Along. Um, Isn't the early section amazing? <laughs> and uh, um, his, uh, he, you have his answering service number, which is 212-924-5451. So if you called and he wasn't in, his service would explain. So Madeline Kahn's shown in a big, big smile during rehearsals for 20th Century. That smile isn't going to last. But um, anyway, I, I could go on and on, as just as Jenna said, all of us could. Um, so terrific, terrific. Seriously. Come to New York to see it if you don't live here. You won't be disappointed. It really is a show in itself. Oh, that's great. And there's, there was one little detail I, I forgot to mention. Uh, if you walk through the exhibit in the proper order, it ends with a keyboard setup, an electric keyboard, with a binder of sheet music from Prince's shows. And there is a, uh, a Mylar curtain and an old-school microphone, and you can stand there and sing a song if you know someone is there who knows how to sight read piano music and it's such a lovely little way to end the exhibit that uh you can continue creating that the the he's created all of these amazing shows and they will live on and the next generation can walk into the space there's a great video i think on youtube now or maybe it was on facebook of uh jason robert brown at the opening event for the exhibit playing uh, All the Wasted Time with Carolee Carmelo sitting there mm. at the uh, at this piano. Mm. And they've got a huge mirror above this little ad hoc cabaret stage. And if you stand there, you look up into the mirror. In theory, if somebody is standing there singing, you can see them reflected. But you can also see the set pieces from various pieces, uh, various musicals in the back. And it's just a lovely little moment. Uh, you can see the present with somebody singing uh, a classic song. You can see the past reflected with set pieces from various shows. It's a beautiful ending point for uh, for the exhibit and very touching. It's a lovely tribute. Was and, anyone singing when you when you were there? Because no. I wouldn't mind Jason, you know, and uh-huh. and Carol Lee, but a, a lot of people would mind if I were singing because I can't <laughs> sing. So. Oh. Don't say that. Every anyone can sing, it, 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 and it, it drives me crazy when people say I can't sing. Anyone, anyone can, can sing. That's what they say. It's easy. But no, it, 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 you can absolutely sing all you want. Whether you know, it, it, other people's opinion of your singing is their problem. That's their issue. If you want to sing, you sing. Anyone can sing, and if that's what you want to do, you go for it. <laughs> so you brought up the. Uh... The topic of um, premium price tickets uh, in the Hal Prince exhibit, um, one of my new favorite uh, follows on Twitter is a, uh, a user called Musical Polls, just a musical poll. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. And they asked a question, and I'll ask the three of you, who is the villain in Hamilton? Do you know who the villain in Hamilton is, in your opinion? Well, shouldn't it automatically I- be Aaron Burr because he shot him? I would say, I would say it's uh, Hamilton's pride. <laughs> Chan, I'm going to go with Peter. I mean, really, you know, and, <laughs> yeah, you know, bloody murder. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My favorite response to uh, who is the vill- villain in Hamilton is yeah. the, t- the ticket prices. <laughs> <laughs> now we're talking. Good answer. Good As answer. Hamilton has another three million dollar week on Broadway alone. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. So before we get on to trivia, I want to remind you that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time you have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play plays us. Anywhere that you can listen to find our podcasts, you can listen to Broadway Radio. And please rate and review us at those things that it helps uh, people find us if you give us a five-star review. Uh, also, don't forget that you can support Broadway Radio by going to patreon.com slash Broadway Radio. And um, there's a different, well, five different ways to uh, support us there at Patreon. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Well, the question uh, from last week was, what smash hit musical mentions Alice Cooper, Betty Crocker, Karen Horney, Yasha Heifetz, Conrad Hilton, Carlo Ponti, Gloria Steinem, Levi Strauss, and Joanne Woodward. And the answer is The Magic Show. Stephen Schwartz's musical that ran over four and a half years. Uh, Alice Cooper was mentioned in Solid Silver Platform Shoes. Betty Crocker in Sweet, Sweet, Sweet. Gloria Steinem in Charmin's Lament. And Karen Horney, Yasha Heifetz, and the others in the song Style. Tony Janicki was again first to get it, followed by Jeff Alenga, Alyssa Marr, Jake Leonard, Brigadoon, and Ingrid Gammerman. So, this week... Three performers sang a Kander and Ebb song in one of their musicals. One performer had already won a Tony. One would soon win a Tony. And one had to wait quite a few years for a Tony. Who are the three? What's the song? And what's the musical? Okay. If you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Jan Simpson, Janetessa Fox, and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 anything at all. I never knew anything at all. Misjudged you when I have always known how lucky I must be. I will never understand how I kept from going crazy, just waiting there till you came home to me. Now, look at me now that you're finally here. Now that I know I was right to wait And everyone else was so 